You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing all right. That's great. That's good to hear. Very pleased to be here with you. That's That part's not true. That's... uh. Probably just, the first time you've ever said that. Just trying it out. Didn't feel good. 274 episodes in. Yep. You may have. You must have already used up your other material. Yeah. I assume. It didn't take long. I was into repeats on my new material, episode 7 or 8. Um, so yeah, this time I tried. I was going for collegial. Yeah, but it came off smarmy, which I yeah. feel like suits you. Okay. That's it? You don't, you don't have any updates? You didn't score any goals? You didn't get a hat trick this weekend? Anything like that? We won. Nailbiter. 3-2. to two. Um, But, you know, sometimes you just you got to be a team player, Chad. It's not all about the individual stats. It's about the scoreboard at the end of the night. That's, it sounds like another, uh, another successful weekend of the lowest possible level of Missoula Korak hockey. That is correct. We are unbeaten. Two wins and a tie. And now, since the league only has four teams in it, we've played absolutely everybody there is to play. And now we just repeat over and over again. So you you, you might be the horse to beat. You guys are in the, uh, the, the driver's seat here. I'll tell you what, if a certain hockey detective could get on that eligibility problem we have with the one team who tied us, I feel like we're, we got the, the title pretty much locked up. That's Where are the, we at? I, I feel like the case maybe has stalled. I haven't heard any updates lately. That's the team with the sandbagger? That's right. Well, we're getting close. A lot yep. of ins and outs. I, I just don't Still want this case the, to go cold. Uh, in the fact-finding portion of the investigation. Okay, yeah. Ben, did you ever want to just wring somebody's neck? Pretty much every week when we record this show. Well, now you can do it while keeping yourself out of the hooskow, because this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Uncaged. Those of you listeners at home that have always wanted to engage in some no-strings-attached fisticuffs, You should pick up a copy of the newest MMA card game to hit the market. That's Uncaged, a physical fighting slash deck building game for all you MMA nerds out there. Did did you say physical? As in, like, real? Like, I can hold the cards in my hands? That's right, Ben. In Uncaged, players select from a growing number of fighters with styles ranging from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to Muay Thai and a bunch in between. You pick up a deck to attack your opponent with everything from jabs, high kicks, takedowns, and submissions, or... If you're more of a George St. Pierre type, you can pick up the defense deck and counter their every move. You grab your copy of Uncaged and you get everything you need right there in the box. You get 50 technique cards and two decks, four fighter cards, the game manual, a score sheet, and a level change token. The game is for two players, ages 12 and up. With the future expansion cards headed your way, you know you'll be able to customize your deck with all the spinning shit you could ever think of. Did we mention customizable decks are coming your way? Load up on your favorite martial arts techniques and go to town on your opponent because the only style that matters is yours. So what are you waiting for? Come get your whole shit broke and visit uncaged-cards.com to pick up a copy today. Once again, that's uncaged-cards.com. 
We got new music again this week from our pal, The Mind of Dre. He's got that new album out called The Prescription. We've been featuring songs from that for the last couple of weeks, and maybe we'll do it in the next couple of weeks, too. If you like what you hear, we urge you to check out more over at SoundCloud.com slash The Mind of Dre. You can also follow him on Twitter at The Mind of Dre. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast in round number one. Not to get too gender-specific on this show, but sometimes it's refreshing to watch a couple of 115-pound women go out there and just have themselves an absolute bloodbath. And in round number two, is Goken Saki out here trying to provoke a discussion on the difference between being a fun fighter and being a good fighter? Because we are provoked, sir. And in round number three, did you know that there was a Bellator card this past weekend? Pretty good one, too. Then near the end, a Benson-Henderson fight broke out. All that, plus, are you fucking kidding me, just saying stuff, and the return of Master Tweet Theater. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Oscar Arneson. You getting on, are you Googling that yeah, right now? I see your fingers working. Let's figure it out, anyway, which, which he, football team he plays He for. writes, so I have to ask, Yushinokami's Okami's choices seemed, shall we say, strange this Friday? Did he have a brain freeze, or is, fight, is his fight IQ really just that low? Everyone knows about OSP's Von Flu choke. It's not a Von Flu... It's not a Von Fluke. Ha ha ha! Nice. Did there? Nice, bro. And Okami should have been aware of it. Should we blame the coaches? Discuss. So, Ben, this weekend in the makeshift main event over at UFC Fight Night 117, live from the Saitama Super Arena over there in Japan, it took light heavyweight Ovin St. Prue one minute and 50 seconds to grab what was, I believe, his uh, his third Von Flu choke victory in the That's UFC right. over uh, Yushin Okami, who I think had been fighting as a welterweight over in the uh, World Series of Fighting slash Professional Fighters League. I think it was a middleweight, really? I think he had gone right. down to welterweight toward the end. We'll, oh, okay. we'll, we'll check it out. Um, but yeah, it gets the technical submission. I see someone here on the Wikipedia page of UFC Fight Night 117 is referring to it as the Von Prue choke. Yes. Which, there you go. And I think that's warranted. And, you know, we don't rename a submission lightly. And I think the, the Von Prue keeps a nod to the creator, Jason Von Flu while also acknowledging, you know, important new work being done in the field. But yeah, you do have to wonder when it's like the one thing everybody knows, like the one ground move you know you might actually have to look out for against Ovin St. Prue is that. Um, and the other reason you shouldn't get caught in that choke is because it only happens when you're doing something dumb that is never going to be helpful anyway. Like you're never, it only happens in a situation where, there's no way you are actually helping your your ground game. You're just kind of trying to hold on to the guy there and maybe not wanting to admit to yourself that the position is getting worse than you want it to be. Because you're not going to actually guillotine somebody uh, when they get in that position and you're holding on to it, making yourself vulnerable to the choke for just absolutely no good reason. So what is the the explanation for a savvy veteran like Yushin Okami, especially a savvy ground fighter like Yushin Okami, making a, a, a boner, you might say, such as that? Yeah, even Ovin St. Prue himself seemed mystified by it. In the post fight, he was sort of like, why did he, why did he do that? Why did he grab my head like that? Like, basically admitting everyone knows that's like the only thing I got going on on the ground. Why would you, uh, why would you let me have it? And it, you're right. It does seem like a gaffe, a boner, uh, by Yushin Okami, but also maybe one that, that, uh, 
that is just kind of like a uh, a muscle memory thing that maybe is hard to untrain yourself to do, just to sort of wrap your arm around a guy's head in that position. And to Oven St. Prue's credit, he gets after that Von Flu slash Von Prue choke pretty quickly. Yeah. Like once you make that mistake, you can see the hands get clasped, and then uh, pretty much immediately after that, Yushin Okami starts grimacing in a way that you can tell uh, the choke is starting to take effect. And then a couple seconds after that, He's in the black land. Yeah. He's on Dream Street. Well, and this is the definitely the best possible case scenario here for Ovin St. Prue because this was a kind of a tough fight for him to come out looking good because of the nature of the late replacement from a different weight class. Like, okay, you have to beat that guy in that situation. If you go out there and you win a decision, it's kind of a letdown. Even if you knock him out, it'll probably just make us all feel bad about what we just watched because we'll be reminded, oh, yeah, that's why we have weight classes. Like, remember when uh, – Stipe, uh, our boy Stipe fought what, Fabio Maldonado is that, and just knocked him out really easily. And it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. That's why we don't do that. Um, but then going out there, getting like his patented submission uh, really quickly, choking him all the way out with it. It gives like a talking point moving forward other than just, hey, he won a fight that he was obviously supposed to win and it proved nothing. I mean, I'm not saying this really proves anything, but at least it – it gives you something to latch on to, which, Jesus Christ, we know the light heavyweight division needs that. Just a quick fact check. It looks like Yushin Okami has been fighting at welterweight for his last five fights. Really? So since 2015, when he fought John Fitch in World Series of Fighting. But you're right about Ovin St. Preux. Uh, and he wins this fight where I believe no, there were no strikes exchanged on the feet, which is kind of a... a it's like seeing a white buffalo or something in the wild. Uh, here <laughs> well, usually Okami shot him almost immediately. He did, which is which I thought was another, I mean, maybe understandable thing for him to do, since if you are undersized, maybe you don't want to be on the feet exchanging uh, power shots with Yushin or with uh, Ovin St. Prue. But at the same time, again, like shoots, gets stuffed, pulls like half guard, and then immediately gets tapped out. The whole th- from start to finish, it was sort of a. Uh, a strange performance by Yushin Okami, and one where afterward he had this look on his face, like, "What are you gonna do?" Right? He's just kind of like <laughs> smiling at the during the uh, the post fight decision when the during the official na- announcement of the time and all that. So yeah, a very strange performance from Yushin Okami. But you are right to say for Ovin St. Prue, this definitely gets him off on the right foot in a division which I guess we have to acknowledge is at the precipice at this point of moving forward. Without John Jones, the longtime champion at 205 pounds, which kind of gives everyone new life in a certain way, even though we, we don't necessarily think OSP is the kind of dude that's going to, you know, roll out of the other side of the bed and, and beat Daniel Cormier and win the title. But maybe the grass is greener for everybody right now on the other side of a potential four year suspension for John Jones. I tell you my uh, favorite Yushin Okami story. Is it the one about him being at Chael Sonnen's house? Well, it involves Chael Sonnen, but it's not that one that you think about. Okay. Well, what is it then? Uh, when I was doing this story on Chael Sonnen a couple of years ago, and I was out there in Oregon, and I, among the people I interviewed was his brother-in-law, uh, who was a really nice guy. And he told me once that when Okami was staying and training with Chael, and he was asking, like, Okami came to, like, a family function of theirs or something, and he was asking, like, Okami, like, you know, I always give Chael a hard time because he never knocks anybody out. Like, you spar with him. Does he actually hit hard? And Okami's response was, Mr. Chael is a very good wrestler. Nice. Diplomatic. Wow. See, I thought it was going to be the one that Chael likes to tell, which is probably a lie about 
how Yushinokami didn't know to say he was full and didn't want any more food, but oh. was, was like too polite to yes. admit it, so he just kept eating and eating and eating. Well, and the other one about his mom pulling a gun on Yushinokami. That one I haven't heard, but that also really? sounds like a lie. <laughs> Maybe not, though. You're just cynical. Next question this week comes to us from Jimmy Wong. He writes, It's sad, but there's no two ways about it. The fireball kid has gone cold. Real cold. He's been stopped in the first round in his last five fights. I don't get it. Why does the UFC keep giving him fights? I imagine... Uh, it would be for his appeal to fans who remember him being an elite lightweight in pride and for Japanese fans, but seeing him get trounced like this over and over again just bums everyone out, doesn't it? Please discuss. Yeah, well, I wrote about this a little bit after the fight, but he's in that problem where the UFC, they only really want him for these kinds of occasions. Like, uh, you know, if you're going to Japan, you can put his name on an otherwise like fairly weak card, sell some tickets, hopefully. Um, you know, it... it makes sense from that perspective or they throw him on like the undercard of UFC 200 kind of lends like it makes it feel like a bigger event because hey you know former legends here basically um but it is getting kind of sad to watch because this is five straight all in the first round and it just seems like he's going down easier and easier uh and I felt like the entire MMA world kind of holding its breath at the end of this one going all right are you gonna say the words now are you are you you ready to be done now? And we didn't get that. Yeah, uh, not only five losses in a row, but four and nine since coming to the UFC in the spring of 2010. So an extended downturn here uh, for Takanori Gomi, who at this point just turned 39 years old a few days ago, and uh, so is is obviously getting toward the end of his athletic prime, and uh, is also the kind of guy who's been fighting uh, since 1998. Jesus. And has uh damn near fifty fights on his uh on his professional record. So you can imagine that not only the age, but having a lot of miles on the tires, kind of wearing out the you know, everything about Takanori Gomi at this point. So he goes out and gets TKO'd in a minute and thirty seconds by Dong Young Kim at lightweight in the on the main card of UFC fight night one seventeen, this being the other Dong Young Kim, the second Dong Young Kim. Maestro. The Maestro, I was going to ask you what you think about the Maestro, because I'm not going to say that I hate it as a nickname, but I also think it makes you sound like a lesser Batman villain, like <laughs> and like probably from the 60s TV show Batman, yeah. where you would be an actual conductor who commits uh -huh. crimes. Yeah, and have a bunch of dudes helping you out that have t-shirts that are like wearing turtlenecks that say henchmen on them. Yeah, um, I'm I'm into it. And frankly, I feel like maybe that should be our test going forward as to whether you have a cool nickname or not, which is... Could you be an off-brand Batman villain with that nickname? If you can't, then you need to rethink yourself. You think that that's a, that's a decider? That's a deciding factor? It needs to be a factor. It needs to be something you consider. Could I be an off-brand Batman villain? Back to Takanori Gomi. <laughs> Clearly, like, we, under, we all understand his inclusion here, right? Yeah. On this, on this fight card in Japan. At the same time, as a lot of these fighters who are near and dear to our hearts continue to age and, and lose their athletic prowess, it does feel like there is one fight on, I'm not going to say every fight card, but but frequently there appears to be at least one fight on every fight card that is kind of like, well, this is the one that's going to depress the shit out of us. Yeah. Which is sort of a, that's a weird place to be. As I think as, as we've talked about before, because you've got these guys that in some way retain their drawing power and maybe necessarily don't necessarily retain all of the skills necessary to be a high level 
professional fighter. Yeah, and but then at the same time, you can't just if you're going to put Takanori Gomi on the card, you can't just give him scrubs. Uh, trying to help him get a win. I mean, he's Gomi. He's got to fight somebody. So he's in a tough spot there, and that's just going to continue, I guess, until the UFC finally decides to let him go and let Ryzen see what they can do with him. Because you know, going to end up in some kind of crazy-ass tournament, and Gomi shows up in there. Come on. You're going to get excited about it, even though you hate yourself. Next question this week comes to us from Tuan Anjos. He writes, he or she writes, I guess. Okay. Juicy A Formiga had an impressive victory Friday night. I'd love to see him fight Mighty Mouse Johnson, uh, but he keeps losing the number one contender fights. Is Formiga currently the best fighter in the UFC never to compete for the title? Uh, Formiga is an interesting dude, right, in this flyweight division. He's 2-2 two and two now in his last four, and he has those losses to Ray Borg and then the split decision to Henry Cejudo, which was back in November of 2015. Uh you want to talk about fights where one guy looks like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and the other guy looks like Bruce Lee from Game of Death? This fight against Ulka Sasaki uh, on Saturday night was one of those ones. And still, Juicy A. Formiga gets the rear naked choke submission win in the first round, which came uh, pretty easily after he decided, hell with this, I'm just shooting a double here. Took the other guy down. Uh, but Formiga, who is, he's only 32, so he's still right in the thick of it at 125 pounds. As Demetrius Johnson continues to thin the herd of title contenders there at flyweight by just beating every single one of them that the UFC can throw at him, uh, guys like Formiga continue to hang around. I would assume it's only a matter of time before he gets a shot at the champ, right? Well, just by process of elimination, when Demetrius Johnson starts going around to every household in America asking if you have any 125-pound able-bodied men inside, one of those doors... You're going to open it, and it's going to be Juicy Formiga behind there. Eventually going to get to Formiga's apartment. Yeah. Where he, I assume he's just going to be sitting on the couch. Playing like, Xbox. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for you. <laughs> like, okay, let me let me just pause the game. Let me save, and then we can go ahead and do this. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, when you have those two losses to one guy who's already had a shot at the title and, uh, and lost, and another guy who is soon to probably get his shot and lose... Um, and I think more people are going to be interested in seeing a Cejudo rematch. I think he's going to do a better job of kind of selling himself. So, I don't know. You, it seems like one of those fights that the UFC would just kind of shrug its shoulders at and be like, all right, I guess we got to make that at some point, and we're not going to be at all excited about it. Um, but you could also kind of screw around and not, not make this thing happen at all if you don't make the right moves as Formiga. Last question this week comes to us from Darian Deskins, who writes, Guys, what kind of monster kicks our beloved UFC featherweight and sex machine, Teruto Ishihara, in the testes, not once, not twice, but three times? It's possible Rolando D cost himself a win here with his love for kicking Teruto right in the junk. But what of Teruto's love for the ladies? Hopefully the so-called quote-unquote bitches in and around Saitama Super Arena didn't have to go home without a thrill. Thoughts? Yeah, man. That was rough. This is like the MMA fight straight from the internet fantasy of Journalist of the Year, Suzanne Davis. Yes. Uh, One guy is named D, mm-hmm. so you get lots of... Uh, lots of D jokes there. Good, good penetration by D on the takedown there attempt you go. there, right? That's just right off the top of your head. And then on top of that, three groin strikes. <laughs> I mean, you it tells you something that even in MMA, somebody finally found the limit of how many groin strikes you can get away with before you lose a point. It turns out to be three. And even then, I love his incredulous reaction. Uh, and then the referee just responding, one point, balls, yes. 
um, as if to tell him, no, you really did kick him the ball. And didn't, I wouldn't say cost himself a win, but if you look at the cards, cost himself a majority draw. Uh, I think the the point made that difference. So, um, man, the the hard part about it is of all the people you're going to go and kick in the balls, the guy who is looking so forward to getting reacquainted with his ladies after a hard training camp is over and it culminates with a fight, that's the guy you're going to go and kick? Because that ain't right, man. It's just, that's like Ishihara living in some kind of Twilight Zone version of his life. In the O. Henry story, that's, this is what happens to Ishihara. He wins this fight, but can't celebrate the way he would like to because his balls hurt too much. What do we make of Teruto Ishihara at this point? Gets off the uh, the schneid, so to speak. Snaps the two-fight losing streak that he had to Artem Lobov and Gray Maynard, or as Dan Hardy would say, Gray Maynard, uh, with this win over Rolando Dai. I feel like if you're looking for promotable featherweights you could do a lot worse than your 26 year old Teruto Ishihara here uh maybe with a slight change in vocabulary words for how he promotes himself and at the same time though uh this is a fight where it looked like he was gonna beat Rolando D really early on in the first round and yet uh we end up going to unanimous decision just makes me wonder if if Ishihara is going to have the goods to sort of go on the prolonged win streak necessary to become a guy in this division. Yeah, and that's kind of what, coming out of that fight, I felt like, all right, aren't we at the point now where he should have made uh, a few more developments in his game? Because clearly he's got some physical tools, uh, but then there are moments in that fight where you think, like, man, this sh- this should be over. Uh, you should have been able to to finish this one. And I guess it just seems like, especially in that division, are you just going to run into the same problem when eventually you're going to have to fight some wrestler who's just going to take you down and gradually grind a hole in your head? Because that seems like that's probably what's going to happen. And there are a lot of dudes in that division who who fit the profile of, of being able to do that to somebody like Ishihara. Yeah, which is, it's kind of too bad from the point of view of Ishihara having a lot of those uh, intangibles, I guess you might say, to to being a moderately promotable guy in this division. He certainly has the look. He certainly like uh, craves the attention. He's got a fairly exciting fighting style when he's out there uh, through that straight left right down the middle and blasted Rolando D uh, in the first minute of this thing. Uh, but, blasted but the D? He, yes, he. thank you. Yes, he blasted the D in the first minute, which no one likes. No one <laughs> wants that. Oh. Uh. Feel like we dug ourselves a hole here. Yep, with the D. Dug ourselves a hole with the D. Yet anyway, again. that's gonna do it for <laughs> listener mail this week. Uh, if you have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future uh, weeks, I got some concerns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we all do at this point. Uh, you know how to do it. Go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says "Email the podcast." That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champion newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. Uh, the, the newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, as you know, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. 
Man, the world is feeling heavy lately. Former friends are saying that they hate me since the day my thoughts become as faces. Since the day the nothing never faced me. All the gotta got a lot of patience. For the bull you pulling out the frame, bitch. If you mad at me, watch where you aiming. Dodging all the hate in the matrix. Man, the world is feeling heavy lately. Ain't no room for me to be complacent. Cause my bills require pay for chasing. High behind the fine space adjacent. Stand adjacent, place beside the faceless sea of people feeling similar. Bro, words well, man. Jessica Andrade and Claudia Gadella come into their women's straw weight fight at Fight Night 117 with the distinction of being two of the last three victims of the dominant straw weight champion, Joanna Jajic. And this fight just seemed to make all the sense in the world in terms of the straw weight pecking order. Then these two go out there and have kind of a crackerjack fight, despite the fact that after the first few minutes, Jessica Andrade kind of ran away with it. Uh, it was still fun to watch. It was gritty in a good way. Uh, I, I think both fighters come out the other side, uh, seeming like appealing people to watch, go out there and put the work in. What were your takeaways here from, uh, it, what I guess is an important strawweight contender fight to fight, despite the fact that, uh, that these two have already both lost to the champion? You know, I was honestly surprised and impressed with, uh, Andrade because especially in the very beginning of this fight, the first two to three minutes, man, Claudio Gadelia looked mean out there, just throwing hard with everything, looked really crisp and sharp, and seemed to have a lot of pop, and Andrade kind of weathered that storm, And it's, but you got the sense early on, like, if she could put uh, Claudio Gadelia on her back, then Gadelia didn't really have too many answers for that, and so it was just kind of getting through that that tough early part, um, but I, I was, I expected it to be a good fight. Uh, I did not expect Andrade just to be that physically dominant in it, especially against somebody like Claudia Gadelia. This was one where I was really happy that we're not just dealing with the uh, black on white and white on black yes. UFC fight kits anymore, because in this fight you had two people roughly the same size, both with really similar haircuts, sort of uh, looking almost interchangeable out there. Pretty similar physiques. Having a, having a real... Uh, like meat grinder kind of a fight. Uh, and I was, I agree. I was, I was also surprised with Jessica Andrade th that she was able to kind of roll over Claudia Gadella in the later, you know, I guess after the first few minutes, not necessarily even in the, in the later rounds, but just sort of after the initial burst that uh, Gadella managed to have. Uh, what do you think is the, like, is the ceiling for either of these two women though? Claudia Gadella still technically, before this fight, your number one contender at strawweight, or at least number one ranked contender, and Jessica Andrade number four, uh, so still in the top five. But you know they they both ran up against Joanna Jajic. Uh They both put up decent fights, but it, neither of them looked like the kind of person that is going to suddenly you know jump up and beat the champion. And especially maybe with Claudia Gadella still kind of looking like she fades down the stretch. It just it seems like we had a fun fight. It was interesting to watch. I'm not sure what the what the next step is really. Yeah, especially because the the thing that Yuana Yanjechik has really excelled at lately is figuring people out as the fight goes on and really taking full advantage of it being five rounds, which, you know, this was a pretty physically depleting battle just for three rounds and you know you can look at both of them and their their fighting styles and be like, "All right, can you go out there and you can you do that?" to Yuani and Jacek for five rounds. I don't know that you can. Um, so it is one of those, 
it's a similar situation kind of to what you see like at uh, men's flyweight where you can see a lot of these top contenders fight. The margin between them is not that great. Uh, but either one of them that comes out of there, it kind of seems like, well, all right, so are we just doing a round robin basically with the champion? I don't, I don't know how interested people are going to be in that for, for how long. Yeah. Well, if you're Jessica Andrade, maybe the light at the end of the tunnel is Joanna Jajic, uh, talking about defending the strawweight title a couple more times and then maybe going up to flyweight. Now, I don't know if the UFC would allow her to try to become the second person to hold two titles at the same time. That's not going great right with, now. Right, with Conor McGregor. And even when they did let Conor McGregor do it, uh, they didn't let him hold on to both of those titles for too very long. He relinquished ones. Right, yeah. Like, he definitely Quite against his will. Definitely relinquished it. Uh, if you're Jessica Andrade, you're still a young person. You're 25 years old, 4-1 and one since moving down to straw weight. She's won three fight night bonuses uh, during that stretch, which is pretty good work if you can get it. Uh, maybe, maybe it's just a waiting game for her to see what, uh, Joanna Yajacek decides to do, especially now that Yajacek has just reached the, uh, magazine cover stage of her title run. It seems like she's, you know, starting to get some, some opportunities that don't avail themselves to everybody. So who knows what she's going to decide to do? I don't know if the, uh, if moving up to, to women's flyweight makes her higher profile or lower profile, but, I guess if you're a Yoanna Yajacek, the world is your oyster at this point, and everyone else is just kind of waiting to figure out to see what you do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it would be kind of awesome for Yoanna Yajacek to let the UFC go through the whole Ultimate Fighter process again to crown a new champ and then again swoop in there and just beat the shit out of whoever that is. That's That's a good gimmick to have. Like, let them go through their whole long process of crowning a champion and then just kind of swoop in there and nullify it. I mean, I'd, I'd be definitely into that. And if you're Claudia Gadella, you, I, I think you're probably even further away now. You already have the two losses to Joanna Yedjaychik. The first one, split decision. The second one, uh, unanimous decision. And then now this loss to Jessica Andrade. Surprising to me, I guess, that that she faded like she did in this three-round fight, although it was a pretty high pace and certainly a grueling style of fight. Uh, but if anything, maybe that seems to be sort of her Achilles heel at this point, because as you said, she started out with a lot of fire. She was landing some nasty elbows. She split uh, Jessica Andrade open on the forehead in the early going. And when all that stuff didn't didn't seem to take out Jessica Andrade, when Andrade was still there and coming back for more, uh, eventually uh, Gedalia just seemed like she couldn't keep it up over 15 minutes Uh and then, and, and, you know, I don't know necessarily you want to say wilted because she was definitely still game, definitely still there, uh, but maybe not firing on all cylinders. This, uh, this, should this have been the main event? This fight, best fight on the card, uh, like on paper and in practice. Um, the actual main, even the original main event, the, the OSP, uh, Hua rematch that everybody had been waiting for since never, you know, that wasn't really super exciting. It seemed like, logically, it would have made sense for this one. It, was it just the UFC saying, yeah, we don't think two Brazilian uh, strawweight women are main event stuff in Japan? Uh, I mean, the original lineup with OSP against Shogun Hua seems like more of like a, a Gomi-style booking than anything else. Like, you're kind of, you're counting on Shogun Hua's previous life as a big star in, in Pride in Japan to maybe bring the people in. Uh I mean, you look at this fight card, almost every fight on the main card has at least one person in it 
that you can at least make the argument uh, is, is going to be somewhat popular to the local crowd in Japan. And maybe Jessica Andrade versus Claudia Gadella is the exception to that rule. But at the same time, I think athletically, yeah, it's obviously the best fight on the card and was the best fight on paper. And, and the most meaningful one. And for the most meaningful division. one. And therefore does not surprise anybody uh, that you go out there and you win fight of the night and you, you have the most uh, exciting fight to watch. So yeah, maybe so. I, I but I don't know if it's a like a slight to the fly, uh, to the straw weights or like a, a a conscious decision by the UFC to to put you know 115 pound women in the co-main event and not necessarily put them over on the marquee. I, I don't know if that's the case or not. Yeah. Anyway, anything else you want to say about this? The future of Claudia Gadella or uh, Jessica Andrade? No, there's nothing else I want to say about it. All through. I'm all, I'm all done. Thank you. you. Want to make any more D jokes? I think I said someone couldn't get it up earlier oh, in this round, on. so I thought, really? I thought I was leaving the door open for you there, but then it, you didn't walk through it. I just, you know, I don't have time for your D. Speaking of which, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. It's been a while since we did that with him. Pretty excited to do that. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am welcoming my fall coat. Yeah, I see you. You look pretty fally. Oh, yes, sir. Leaves blow about my hair and, and my hair in turn You don't have any back. hair. You no. don't have a single strand of hair on your body. It's no, weird. not on my head, sir. <laughs> well, I assume you brought us some tweets centered around a barely plausible theme. Yes, sir, I have. The theme is expectations. You know, I feel like that's been the theme of the entire association we've had with Sir Nigel, Chad. And again, a disappointing theme. Yes, a theme that falls apart. I think the theme is expectations wildly exceeded. <laughs> okay, we shall see. Mm -hmm, yes, let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Schwartz Novelty Peanut Brittle, the novelty can of peanut brittle that is clearly labeled snakes. Do you want to prank a friend who loves peanut brittle and is functionally illiterate? Are you tired of forgetting that you purchased a prank can of peanut brittle and then scaring yourself? Every can of Schwartz Novelty Peanut Brittle is packed with spring-loaded snakes and clearly labeled as such. It's the perfect prank for libraries, operating theaters, and preschools. Schwartz Novelty Peanut Brittle. It's definitely snakes. I hope you're getting paid well for these. So much, sir. Yeah. Dozens you're, of dollars. You're, you're paying estimated taxes, I hope, right? Oh, yes. You're every getting, All your ducks are in a row there? Every quarter I call the IRS and tell them to have sex with themselves. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the first. The theme is expectations. That's right. Yes, thank you. Tweets that reveal the tweeter's okay. expectations. Got it. <clears throat> Tweet the first. I stayed at same hotel at Chris Cyborg stayed while at Phuket OP team police came my room and the hotel a few times during my stay. It's normal Thailand. We, I lost a, th a thread there in the middle. Indeed, sir. Yeah. It is a confusing tweet, but let's, let's run through it again. Okay. I stayed at same hotel as at Chris Cyborg stayed while Phuket OP team police came my room and the hotel a few times during my stay. It's normal Thailand. 
it's normal Thailand. Okay, so this is in reference to this weird story about uh, the cops supposedly being called on drug testers coming to try to drug test Chris Cyborg. You hear about this? Yeah, vaguely. Vaguely I did. Yeah, well, vaguely we, we learn more, I guess. Uh, this tweet, man, it's gotten to the point where I want to say, like, this is a non-native English speaker. But there's anything I've learned with Master Tweet Theater. It's just you you don't know. It's not that simple. Um. Still, I'm going to say Jessica I. Okay. See, I was also going to say Jessica I here. Uh, I feel like it's a fake out. Like we're supposed to think it's Vanderlei Silva or someone, but it's 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 Jessica I. Is that your guess? It's my guess. All right. Both fine guesses. Jessica I, I believe a native speaker of English and wrong. It is the poet Philip Baroni. Oh, damn it. Yes. You should expect the police to come to your Thai hotel room. It happens all the time. Well, if you're Phil Baroni, you should expect that. Indeed, sir. Hmm. Tweet the second. Made the wait and time to make money, and finally I can take care with my ladies after work. Ha <laughs> ha! Wink emoji, money bag emoji, two women who are friends emoji. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like your guy, Teruto Ishihara. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a short putt there. That's a yeah. gimme. It is! It is Teruto Ishihara! What is the, the emoji of two friends, two women who are friends? I don't know if I've seen that Unclear. one. Unclear. I spent a long time looking at it, sir. It seems like they are wearing <laughs> school uniforms. Okay. But also they have some sort of thing on their head, like Mickey Mouse ears. But we're, we're just getting down to the pixels there. Huh. Yes. All right. Well, leave it to Teruto Ishihara to find that emoji. They are friends. Hmm. Tweet the third. This tweet is in response to a tweet from the UFC. The tweet from the UFC is, Jessica Andrade is a robot. And this tweet says, she's the little cyborg. Perfect nickname. Huh. Okay. What is this expectation? How is this? What? You will see, sir. I'm going to say the actual cyborg. Chris Cyborg. That is what I was going to say. Um... I feel like that's the only way it could make sense, right? Well, Expectations. Who says it has to okay, make yeah, sense. you're right. It is. It is Chris Cyborg having been married to a person nicknamed Cyborg and also being named Cyborg herself. She regards it as the perfect nickname. <laughs> well, it's she got a lot of mileage out of it, to be fair. Sir Nigel Cyborg Longstar. How is this expectation, though? She expects everyone to adopt the nickname Cyborg. Up. God Seriously. damn it. No, it's how she views the world. That's that's your justification there? She looks around, she sees people just like her. Mm. Uh, come on. Tweet the fourth. Mexico waves a bigger flag than any other country I've been. Mexican flag emoji. Have to respect the patriotism of this country. Praying hands emoji. Hashtag Mexico City earthquake. Whew. Okay. Um... Fuck it, Tito Ortiz. That's way too, way too, like... <laughs> lucid? Lucid for Tito Ortiz. I'm going to say that that is the other Randy Couture, Rich Franklin. Oh, that's good. Both fine guesses, both big fans of Mexico, and only one correct, it is Tito Ortiz. Oh, no! yeah. That's, I feel I've been cheated here. <laughs> There's absolutely no way for you to feel that way. What's in the news, he asked himself. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. They keep attacking me. That's what you get. Kick to the back of your head and loss of an eye. What? Mm-hmm. Would you like to hear it again, sir? Yeah, I guess so. They keep attacking me. That's what you get. Kick to the back of your head and loss of an eye. 
kick to the back of your head and loss of an eye. You got any, I, any thoughts here? I still can't believe you just pulled Tito Ortiz out of your back pocket. I just feel like you and Sir Nigel are exchanging hand signals here or something. Uh, don't know. Uh, Boss Rutten. Oh, okay. Well, that's always a good guess when he's getting kicked in the head. Um, Matt Mitrione? Sure. Well, I was going to say both fine guesses, but <laughs> muh, it is. It's Boss Rudin. Oh, wow. Posting a picture of himself gouging out someone's eye for the first time in at least three years. Wow. I think this might be like the best we've ever done cumulatively. This probably should be the last one, huh? Just wrap it up here. <laughs> <laughs> I should say so, sir. Just put Sir Nigel on a train headed out of town to points unknown. Well, I guess that about wraps it up. What do you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished shooting an exciting film about a woman who has three different lovers, one of whom is a murderous ghost clown. I see. And what's it called? It's called She's Gotta Have It. And what role do you play? I play a psychic balloon. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was Master Sweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstar. Thank you, sir. Man, the world's feeling heavy lately. All my friends are saying that they hate me since the day my thoughts become spaces. Since the day the nothing never faced me. All the guy that got a lot of patience. For the bull you pulling out the frame, bitch. If you're mad at me, watch where you're aiming. Dodging all the hate in the matrix. Man, the world's feeling heavy lately. Ain't no room for me to be complacent. Cause my bills require paper chasing. High behind the fine space adjacent. Stand adjacent, place beside the faceless sea of people feeling similar. All right, Chad, so. Gokan Saki comes in here. Everybody knows, super violent kickboxer, exciting striker. Uh, can he do the old MMA? I know. Let's go in there and see if we can just go ahead and stand with him. Because that's what uh, Henrique de Silva seemed to want to do kind of for a long time. And then eventually he seemed to get in his head that that was a bad idea. But by then it was too late. Uh, this was a fun fight. It also left me feeling like, okay, what are we going to ask of Gokan Saki in his time in the UFC? Because that's going to prove to be the important thing. If you, are you just going to set up a series of these kind of fights for him? Because if so, I can kind of get into it. That was fun as all hell to watch. However, if you're going to try to make him into like a uh, legit player in the division, and he's going to have to fight some of those dudes who are just going to pick him up and slam him down on his head, I think that's going to get a lot less fun, and yet... Is it unavoidable at some point? Yeah, I think that that's the right question to ask here because, you know, Gokensaki goes out there. He throws punches with as nasty of intentions as anyone that I have ever seen in MMA. And it seemed like, not even in retrospect, but on paper, that Henrique de Silva was sort of a hand-picked opponent for Saki to come in on his... UFC debut because the Silva's not a guy who's going to take you down right away. You know, he's, he's primarily a striker. He's a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which obviously is probably better than what Gokensaki has. But at the same time, like that's not his go-to skill set. And on top of all that stuff, he's not a big light heavyweight, even though he used to fight at heavyweight, he's only six foot. Uh, and he obviously makes the 205 pound limit without much of a problem. So if you were looking for, stylistic challenges for Gokensaki, you kind of took them all off the table. Yeah. With Enrique Da Silva, uh I was impressed 
that De Silva hung in there as long as he did. Yeah. And I think maybe Saki was as well because he uncorked some monster shots on this guy. Uh, and he didn't go down until the tail end of the first round when it looked like Gokensagi was starting to get pretty tired, which I think is another kind of interesting aspect to this that we can discuss in a minute. But if the million dollar question is, what do you do with Gokensaki? I would say in a light heavyweight division, that at this point is just desperate for any kind of excitement or electricity or buzz that it can get, and a light heavyweight division that doesn't necessarily even have a structured title picture right now because we don't know what is going on with the guy who just won the title and then had it stripped and the put the title back on Cormier and who knows what he's going to do. Uh, I think you you take the Turkish Tyson and you go the Tyson route with him and just see if he can knock some motherfuckers out for a little while. Uh because he looks certainly capable, but also super green in this sport. And why would you do the typical UFC thing by like giving Gokensaki to a wrestler who's going to go out there and beat him in his next fight? It just, it like doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. Well, are you saying that if I'm a UFC light heavyweight and I get the call and they say, Hey, we want you to fight Gokensaki next, I should interpret that as an insult to my wrestling ability? Because they they wouldn't call me if they thought that there was a chance I might just double leg him and uh, elbow him until he quits. I mean, I think if you are a professional mixed martial arts fighter, you believe that you are going to murder anyone you go in there with. So, like, if they called you up and said, hey, Ben, we got a silverback gorilla for you to fight, you would probably be like, oh, yeah? What's his takedown defense like? As soon as I get him on the ground, it's over. Yeah. Right? Well, I want USADA to get in there and test that gorilla first before I even consider this matchup. But yeah, I see your point there. It just seems like Gogensaki could be kind of a fun guy. Yeah. And we Hell need yeah. that right now, we, especially at 205 pounds. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, we definitely need that. A fun guy, it seems like, uh, both just in terms of fighting style and brings a lot of personality. I wonder, though, because I, I kind of think of uh, Mark Hunt. Like when Mark Hunt insisted on getting some fights in the UFC rather than just being like bought out of his pride contract. And the attitude was like, well, okay, yeah, Mark Hunt, we know, great striker, but his ground game is such a liability that he's never really going to go anywhere. And then when he ended up being like a fun knockout artist in the UFC, for a while there, everybody was just kind of being like, oh, man, isn't this improbable run of Mark Hunt, isn't this great, isn't this just a lot of fun to watch? And every time you'd talk to him about it, he'd just be like, no, man, I'm trying to be the champion. I'm trying to be the best in the world. And everybody would be like, wait a minute. Champion of the UFC? Are you are you sure? Are you, have you met you? Like nobody really took that seriously. I wonder if maybe you know Gokansaki. He wins this fight, declares the UFC his house. Is he gonna get in his head eventually? Like, hey, I'm not just here to put on fun fights for you guys. I'm not just here to you know knock somebody out once every six months. I'm trying to climb up the the, the ranks and be the actual UFC light heavyweight champion. Like, is that? Is that a point when you say, all right, let's give him to Corey Anderson and just find out what the hell he can do. Find out if he can fend off a takedown. Yeah, well, and then he calls out Alistair Overeem, right, in the in the post-fight of this. Uh, I assume for a heavyweight fight, uh, since Overeem's not coming down to 205. Uh, you know, Saki is a, a, he's still in his athletic prime, for the most part, at 33 years old and came into this fight two years removed from his last fight. Uh, and so, uh, which might help explain the fatigue, a right? Little bit. You, I mean, you can understand how maybe he looks a little rusty, how he's not necessarily prepared to go five minutes, let alone 15. 
Uh, and that makes me wonder, like, what the guy's ceiling is. Like, I think that, like, stylistically, it's it's fair to compare him to Mark Hunt. But, like, do you think in terms of, like, overall ceiling, it's fair to compare him to Mark Hunt? Like, we knew pretty much what Mark Hunt's MMA deal was by the time he arrived in the UFC. This is, But we were wrong, though. I mean, Mark Hunt turned out to be a lot better than, like, he was actually, you know, a legit sure. title contender. Sure. I mean, yeah, but I mean, I, I guess I'm saying skill set wise, do you think that Gokin Saki can round out his game enough uh, just in terms of at least defensive wrestling, if not, you know, skills on the actual ground uh, to become a realistic player in this division? What I'm hearing is six months of sprawl training. Huh? Well, let's be honest. Like the dude's takedown defense didn't look that bad in this fight. He's only out there against Henrique da Silva. So yeah. it's not like, uh, he was he was running wrestling drills with Daniel Cormier out there, but at the same time, like shook off numerous takedown defense or takedown attempts. Didn't seem like he had terrible takedown defense, uh, but it just made him a little tired. Made him feel like maybe uh, he was ready for to to get out of there. Well, and you know when you're you, you mentioned him throwing with bad intentions, you do that and you might wear yourself out a little bit. But I don't know. You know, it seems like. It's going to be this huge question until he actually fights somebody who is known as a really good wrestler and grappler, and we actually get a chance to find out. Um, my guess is the UFC will prolong that moment of truth, uh, and we'll get a few more of these fights. It'll be, I mean, I do think if you're the next person that the UFC calls up, uh, to try to make a fight for Gokan Saki, you might wonder at the motives behind it. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Did I read that correctly? That he was that he was trying to say he wanted to fight Alcer over him, or were they ex- exchanging pleasantries as former kickboxers? Because when this thing was over, he did go up to the side of the cage and he, like he pointed it over him and had something to say to him. Uh, I'm obviously watching these things late at night while my children are asleep, yeah. so I got the volume down. Uh, so uh, I guess I don't know if he was trying to pitch himself a heavyweight encounter with Alcer over him, or if uh, if they're bros. From their kickboxing days, I know that they fought in the in the final of a K1 tournament, right? But I guess I'm not sure what their relationship is. Because oh. what? Because I'm saying, what if they did that? What if what if Gokunsaki is the kind of dude where they're like, all right, heavyweight fight with Overeem? Are we okay with that, or do we just think he would get murdered? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be one or the other. We could be okay with it and think he'd get murdered. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just it, my feeling is that the USC is going to think look around for him and say what would be fun and not what would make the most sense in terms of like it, when you beat number eight then you you move to, on to number seven kind of deal Jean Volante okay sure Patrick Cummins or too much wrestling oh, there man well I mean if you go out there if you send Gogan Saki out there and he gets beat by Patrick Cummins that's probably not a good look for his future yeah I don't know I'm just tossing out names Got the bricklayer out there. See, now, well, you do have the bricklayer out there. Uh, now I'm picturing John Viante getting this call and being like, sure, wait a minute. <laughs> what are you trying to say? Uh, anyway, you want to do, uh, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number three. Sure. Ben, what is your, are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad, we all saw it. Mizuto Hirota gets on the scale there. And not only does he miss weight, but God, he looks terrible. Looks like he is near death. Just doing like a zombie march up to the scale. Stands there on the scale to, you know, reveal that he has missed weight by four pounds. And then trying to step off the scale, almost falls over and has to be caught. 
by, of all people, Jeff Nowitzki, the UFC VP of Athlete Health and Safety or whatever, Health and Performance. Are you fucking kidding me? That, that kind of highlights the real danger that can go into some of this weight-cutting stuff and put the UFC in a position where, God, they had to pull that fight. Because how bad is it going to look if he has to be caught in the arms of the vice president of, like, health and safety and performance and whatever. Well, that's what he's there for, right? That's <laughs> that's health and safety right there. Yep. That that was some safety he added to that equation. Uh, are you fucking kidding me? That is kind of scary. You fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, uh, an undercard fight on UFC Fight Night 117. Uh, Shincho uh, Anzai and Luke Jumeau. Nailed it. Go out there, welterweight. Interesting wrinkle to this fight, Ben. I don't know if you've noticed. Anzai walked out to Roland by Limp Biscuit, and Luke Jumeau came out to Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. What? Which makes me wonder if they made a rule that you had to walk out to a song that was on a CD that got stolen out of your car when you were in high school? Because <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Like, a, It's 2017 and a dude walks out to Roland. Like, which WWE knew was not cool like 10 years ago. <laughs> they were like, all right, let's repackage The Undertaker. We got to get him away from Roland. You fucking Gangster's, kidding me? Gangster's Paradise, though. That's that's legit. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Man, the world's feeling heavy lately. Former friends are saying that they hate me. Since the day, my thoughts become a space. And since the day, the nothing never faced me. All the guy that got a lot of patience. For the bull, you're pulling out the frame, bitch. If you're mad at me, watch where you're aiming. Dodging all the hate in the matrix. Man, the world's feeling heavy lately. Ain't no room for me to be complacent. Cause my bills require paper chasing. High behind the fine space adjacent. Stand adjacent, place beside the faceless sea of people feeling similar. Well, Ben, every time the UFC and Bellator do high-profile events during the same weekend, I feel like in the days following, we get these who won the weekend questions, polls. Maybe someone writes a story somewhere. Do you feel like that's a legitimate line of inquiry about these two companies? Uh, or are we still so far apart that uh, it's not really a, a serious discussion? Well, I mean, it is... A discussion worth having, but one of the things that makes it difficult is you asked me like who had the stronger event this weekend. I gotta say it was Bellator, but it's like this was, you know, not quite the best that Bellator can offer, but pretty close. You know, this was like one of its more uh, notable events in terms of just who is involved and uh, that kind of stuff. But if you put it up against you know, one of the weakest that the UFC can do, then yeah, sure, like Bellator can win the weekend. But does that mean that Bellator, therefore, is better or is closing in on the UFC in terms of like popularity or importance? You know, not necessarily. It's tough to compare those two things because the UFC has shown us like that it has a bunch of different kinds of events. And, uh, you know, as does Bellator, this is not quite the tent pole, but it was definitely trying a lot harder, I guess, than the UFC was. So, sure, you, you did better this weekend. You had the more notable event. What does that tell you, though? Yeah, uh, numerous things, I think, that uh, are worth discussing as we head out of this Bellator event. We got our second look at Aaron Pico, probably the most highly touted prospect maybe in the history of the sport. He goes out there for his second fight after his disastrous 
Bellator debut back in June at Bellator 180 uh, when he got rocked by Zach Freeman and lost via guillotine choke in a lightweight fight. He moves down to featherweight for this one and takes on Justin the Mortal Sin, Lynn, uh, at 145 pounds and ends up winning via first-round knockout, uh, utilizing a highlight that I'm sure will be played uh, throughout his entire career, most likely. Uh, first of all, Ben, the mortal sin. Yeah, I don't, un- I don't get it. I mean, it rhymes. Justin, the mortal sin, Lynn. You know how I feel about rhyming nicknames. I know that you lo- you're very, you're very much pro. You love them. That's you love not, a rhyming that's nickname. That's just not true. And I think having a, a nickname that rhymes is kind of like what I remember a, uh, a creative writing teacher saying about putting something like in a short story just because it, it really happened. Um, not a good enough reason. Need a better reason than, than it rhymes. Uh, also, I just don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand it as a nickname. Couldn't be a off-brand Batman villain. The mortal sin. Yeah, probably not. Nope. What, what would your costume even be? That's for, yeah, it's, well, you ask all the, you're asking all the right questions here. I think we need to point that out. Thank you. Aaron Pico, you know, Bellator has locked up a bunch of these, like, former amateur wrestlers who are transitioning now to MMA. I assume as a, a, a stated personnel strategy by Bellator to try to get these young, highly touted prospects, but guys that just don't have a ton of, of professional MMA experience. Uh, Aaron Pico being maybe the, the biggest and best example. The guy just turned 21 years old last week. At this point, he has got an all-star coaching staff. He had Crazy Bob Cook and Antonio McKee in his corner this weekend to fight Justin Lin. It does look like featherweight is probably the better place for him than lightweight. Uh, he certainly accepted some punches from Justin Lin, but was able to to walk through them, to get around them in a way that he was not able to do against Zach Freeman and eventually uncorks his own, what I believe was a counter left hook, if I'm remembering yeah. correctly. And just shut the lights out for Justin Lin. Uh, what are, what's your take on the, uh, on the future of Aaron Pico, who is a guy that we had been hearing about for years and have only just gotten the chance to actually watch start beginning to fight this year? In a way, like I kind of feel bad for him because he can't just do it the way any other fighter would do it, where we're going to you know, form our opinion gradually as he goes along because he just came in with – I don't want to say baggage, but so much, uh, the, the weight of the expectation was just so much. And then, you know, he, he goes out there and had like a legitimately tough matchup for his first pro fight against Zach Freeman there and lost, uh, and then comes back and wins this one. But it's like, there's so little to go on. I mean, clearly you can see physically he has a ton of awesome tools and he's a, a great athlete, but there's just going to be so big a spotlight on every single fight for a guy who has so few fights. I mean, two pro fights, really not a whole lot for us to go on there. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like he's going to be kind of put in this tough spot. Cause no matter what, if you put him up against somebody legit, then, you know, like you did with Zach Freeman, it's a tough fight. It could go badly for him. If you put him up against somebody else where it seems like you're just, feeding them cans to help get your your uh, prospect that you're super excited about some wins, people are going to resent you for that. So it's kind of a no-win situation. What do you think if you're a Bellator fighter who gets called to fight Aaron Pico? Uh, I think that uh, Bellator does not want to be in my business 
They're, they're not thinking that I'm a star they really want to bring along, especially because the problem is like, who are you going to find another guy who has two or three pro fights? Cause if you do that, people are going to be like, okay, this is a bullshit fight. You're just trying to, uh, pad his record. Um, but then again, if I'm like, you know, 12 and seven and they call me up to, to fight Aaron Pico, I'm like, you're hoping I get knocked out, aren't you? You're, you're already preparing the highlight. Well, speaking of highlight real knockouts, Paul Daly and Lorenz Larkin Wolf, uh, rolled into their welterweight conflict here on the heels of losses. Lorenz Larkin, the former UFC fighter, had just been, uh, defeated by Douglas Lima in a chal- in a, a championship match for Bellator. And Paul Daly rolls into this thing on the heels of his loss, uh, to Rory McDonald. Lorenz Larkin had some good early moments in this thing in the first round, but you want to talk about something that's probably going to get replayed a lot. How about this finishing sequence from Paul Daly uh, where Larkin misses a knee and then Daly throws a spinning back fist, which he misses, but follows it up pretty much immediately with a left hook that uh, if not, if it didn't hit the off switch on Lorenz Larkin, it definitely hit control alt delete yeah there was like a reset yeah he like he restarted yeah his feet and didn't get the chance to somebody turned it off mid boot which is not good (laughs) you're not supposed to do that yeah kind of just swatted him upside the head with that left hook and uh you know lorenz larkin just suddenly adopted the facial expression and posture of a man who's wondering if he left the oven on at home uh and man that paul daly just that that power that at any moment can just kind of force you to rethink your entire life. That that guy is scary. I, I don't. I mean, I feel like I, I think everybody feels like okay. We we know the the ceiling on Paul Daly. We kind of saw it. We saw the book on him when he was in the UFC. Um, but then you put him in there, and it's like even if you put him against somebody where I'm ninety five percent sure he's just going to get wrestled uh, into a grinding, slow, boring defeat. But every fight, every every round starts on the feet, Jad. So there's always that chance. And that's, I mean, people love that shit. You, you never, the promise of power kind of never gets old. And especially with a guy like that, where even if he's in a matchup where it seems like he should absolutely lose, there's always that chance that he's just going to hit you upside the head with like a tennis racket, basically. And uh, suddenly you got a whole new world. Then you get your main event, a lightweight fight between Patricky Pitbull and the former UFC lightweight champion Benson Henderson. Uh, ben, Patricky Pitbull has a Pitbull Brothers branded tattoo on his shoulder, which I think is like, I understand why you would have it. It's like getting a tattoo of your like high school rock band's name somewhere on you. Which, of course, you have, right? Uh, absolutely. One of my many tattoos, as yes. you know. But isn't it weird to have a ta- if you are a Patricky Pitbull? Isn't it kind of weird to have a tattoo on your shoulder that says Pitbull Brothers? <laughs> I feel like at this point, uh, Scott Coker should have to get one. If you're going to be in charge at Bellator, you should you have to get a Pitbull Brothers branded tattoo somewhere on your person. Well, there's probably a stencil because we've got <laughs> Patricky. Patricky has one. Uh, this is a this is a classic Benson Henderson fight, right? Which I'll be honest, I didn't watch it live, so I had to circle back and uh and catch the uh the replay. Luckily Bellator has all these things on their website. Yeah. Full fight videos every single That's time. That's handy. I go there, I watch I I'll be honest with you, I was kind of dreading it at first because I was like, well, 25 minutes of uh Benson Henderson fight. I'm not sure that that I'm 
that I'm here for that at this point when I already know the outcome. So I'm pleased as punch to find out we're only doing three rounds here because <laughs> Bellator is still not making their their main event fights randomly five rounds like the UFC does. We get in and out of this thing for 15 minutes, and it is, Ben, a classic Benson Henderson performance. He just comes out on the losing end here instead of winning the razor-thin split decision as we are accustomed to seeing. Yeah, and how mad can you get if you're Benson Henderson? You feel like the, the MMA gods might owe you some payback down the line, right? Like, he he got a few of those that went for him. and But, yeah, I don't know. His style just lends itself so easily to that. Uh, you, you can't be too surprised, or you shouldn't be too surprised, when sometimes those goes for you and sometimes those go against you. Now, here's the thing with Bellator, Ben. We have this high-profile Bellator 183, uh, which I think was a good show. I think everybody who watched it came away feeling positive. Uh, we're going to take this week off, and then on October 6th at the Windstar World Casino in Thackerville, Oklahoma. Granddaddy of them all. The granddaddy of them all. We have the Bantamweight title fight featuring Bellator Bantamweight champion. Come on. Say it. Come on. You got it. Right? <laughs> he doesn't know, ladies and gentlemen. Eduardo Dantas. Eduardo Dantas. Against Darian Caldwell. That's your main event. You also got Daniel Pumps. Strauss. Super pumped. Well, you, okay. you got Daniel Strauss and Pat Curran on this card. All right. Uh, but at the same time, like, that's sort of the issue with Bellator, right? Like, you can have this one borderline tentpole event that seems great, and then your next event, maybe not so much. I mean, yeah. I think you got good fighters on there, but that's not one that's going to get the uh, the excitement machine fired up. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, if we're if our concern is that Bellator does not have the roster to sustain momentum, I'd say that's like... Concern number 37, way down there on the list for Bellator. Get the momentum, then worry about sustaining it. I, I wouldn't get too fired up about that part just yet because you're still, you're still fighting that battle of getting people to care enough when you have like a real event on, you know, that especially on the same weekend as a USC, you're getting, fighting that battle to get people to realize, okay, the brand name is not actually that important. We still have good fighters and good fights. Is concern number one getting Scott Coker that Pitbull Brothers tattoo? I, how does he not already have one? It's in the, gotta be in the top ten of concerns, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, it seems like if you told me that the, the Pitbull Brothers now own a piece of Bellator and nobody knows how it happened, like the, even the suits in, in corporate can't explain it. The Pitbull Brothers didn't know what happened. They just woke up one day and were part owners of Bellator. I feel like I'd believe that. Maybe I've misjudged him, but Scott Coker doesn't seem like the kind of guy who is going to get a tattoo on a lark. <laughs> he's just, really going to think think it through? That's my feeling about him. Yeah. He's going to give it a lot of serious thought, and he'll come back to you in something with something in week, 10 days. <laughs> get back to you on that. Uh, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, did you see that Dana White came out on Twitter this week and said that they are definitely, absolutely, not at all, in in all caps, at all, planning on doing Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz 3 at UFC 219 on December 30th in Las Vegas. I did not see that because he has me blocked on Twitter. So I'm just saying, should we get tickets? <laughs> Book a couple of rooms? What do you think? I absolutely do not think that's a wonderful idea. At all, in all caps. <laughs> ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Uh, Well, Chad, speaking of Bellator, did you see... Rory McDonald out there in a goddamn Steve Jobs turtleneck. I did. 
I did. I, I ask, he must know what he's doing at oh, this absolutely, point, right? Right. He must know like that he is just a w- weird psycho who we love and are terrified by. And I am totally into it. That's, that's what I'm just saying. I'm just saying that when I w- really wanted to be there kind of in the moment, be a fly on the wall when Roy McDonald looked through his closet, thought, okay, what am I going to wear? For, go on TV here and, uh, you know, do this mic thing with, uh, Douglas Lima. Turtleneck. That's it. Conversation over. Don't even need to think about it anymore. It was, it was turtleneck or it was sleeveless sweater vest. Uh, turtleneck. Money. Just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to look ahead to UFC 216, uh, which I believe is coming up not this weekend, but next weekend, featuring Demetrius Johnson's fight with Ray Borg and Tony Ferguson's interim lightweight title fight against Kevin Lee. So that'll be pretty fun to talk about. Your boy T-Ferg. Your boy K-Lee. No. Doesn't work. No, Kaylee. It just sounds like a millennial girl. Sounds like someone on the varsity volleyball team yeah. up the street at the high school. Kaylee had a great game. A lot of kills. Thanks for coming out, Kaylee. 33 digs. School record in digs. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. 33 digs sounds like a lot, actually. That would be a lot if you were a libero. Oh, I'm sorry? Libero in volleyball. That's the defensive position. If you are, uh, for lack of a better term, a short girl, you're probably a libero. Wow, it sounds like somebody has covered high school sports for a local newspaper. Don't pretend like you don't know you're sitting across from a